there are a lot of different ways to express love. You've probably heard it said to, to parents and others who work with young people that children spell love by four different letters. T-I-M-E. That is, the more time we spend with children and show them attention, the more they feel as if they're loved. Sometimes we're reminded that love is more than just an attitude, it's an action. You, you can say all day long, I love you, but do you ever show that in the things that you do for another person? But it's also important to actually state those words every once in a while, to actually remind the person that you do love them. Reminded of the old story, the couple had been married for about 40 years and they were on a date. And they were sitting at a restaurant, sitting at the table next to them was a young couple just goofily looking into each other's eyes and just saying all kinds of saccharine nothings to each other. And finally the wife, been married 40 years, said, Honey, you never say you love me anymore. And he said, I told you I love you on the day we got married. If I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> Guys, Valentine's Day is Tuesday. Don't take that advice. Now hold those thoughts of love in your mind just for a second. The Old Testament book of Malachi, as Dwayne mentioned a few moments ago, is the last book of the Old Testament. It's also the last book chronologically. Some suggest, and I think it's possible if not probable, that the final chapter of Nehemiah may have happened after Malachi, but that would be it chronologically. For, for certain, Malachi is right near the end. And it's, it's a difficult book to read, not necessarily because the contents are all that hard, but because of the attitudes of the prophet, or God through the prophet, was having to fight against. These were supposed to be God's people. And yet they continually just push back. They continually show themselves to be wrong and, and rebellious. And the book of Malachi uses a sort of an odd way of presenting things. Scholars like to call it dynamic dialectic. Don't I sound smart? I have no idea what it means, but it sounds smart. All it means is this. There's a statement made or a charge made. And then an assumed answer is given. And then the response is given to that assumed answer. We saw that this morning in our Scripture reading. I have loved you. Assumed answer. How have you loved us? And then the response is given. That's all that fancy phrase means. And Malachi, or God through Malachi, will use that way of talking over and over and over in the book but it's interesting to me that the very first thing out of the shoot is dealing with the love of God. We love talking about that. We enjoy thinking about the love of God. We enjoy singing about the love of God. And yet right at the, at the beginning of this book, God makes the charge or the statement, I have loved you. And just to be sure they don't miss it, Malachi adds, says the Lord. This is God saying, I have loved you. And the people turn around and say, how? God, how have you loved us? And in part, for the next few verses, God will remind them of the covenant that He made with, with Jacob and how He's loved Jacob all through history and how He's protected His people. And at the end of the reading, the reason I want us to go through verse 5 is they would be reminded to say, basically, praise God. But here's what I'm thinking. There may be some people in this very room who have asked very much the same question that those people asked God in Malachi. I mean, you came to church this morning. You got dressed up for this. But somewhere in the back of your mind, you're wondering, 
God, you really love me. I didn't come here this morning to just glibly say, oh, buck up, you know that God loves you. I came here this morning to do exactly what God through the prophet Malachi did in the Old Testament. But I want us to go to the New Testament and notice some ways that God says through His Word, I have loved you. Oh, we could make a long, long list if we wanted to. But I want to share with you five things this morning. Five ways that in the New Testament, God says to every one of His people, whether you're strong in the faith or weak in the faith, whether things are going great or whether you're questioning some things, God says to you through His Word, I've loved you. First of all, God says, I've loved you in salvation. We didn't put the reference on the screens, but probably the first verse that comes to your mind is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. But I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. And in the, the, the course of this lesson this morning, by the way, we're going to have a couple of readings that are a little longer than we usually have, but it's because I want us to see some context. And by the way, you may want to put your ribbon or your uh, attendance card or something in Romans chapter 5. We're going to come back to it near the end of our lesson. But in Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 6, Paul basically expands on what Jesus had said famously in John 3.16, that God loved the world and gave His only Son. Look at what he writes beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now you read those verses, and Paul paints a very bleak picture of what it was like before Jesus. We were sinners, Verse 10, we were enemies of God, but God shows His love toward us. That's the phrase on which that entire paragraph turns. The words translate shows, or your, your Bible may say something like commendeth or commends or demonstrates. It's a word that literally means to set together or to establish together. Think about that for a second. Paul is saying, that the way that God establishes in our mind the love of God is that even when I was a sinner, He sent His Son to save me. That's what establishes the love of God in our mind. is salvation. How beautiful of a thought that is. Every time you and I look at the cross of Jesus Christ, there are, there are dozens if not hundreds of lessons that we could learn. There are many, many things that we should be sure of to know that we understand some things about God. We look at the cross and we could see some very just basic clinical things. We could just learn some facts. And that's good to do. Sometimes we can look at the cross and we can see prophecies fulfilled. That's a wonderful thing to learn. Sometimes we look at the cross and we think about emotional things, psychological things, mental things. And that's, that's wonderful. But if we ever look at the cross and do not see the love of God, we've missed the point. God sets in our mind the love of God. And that while we were sinners, He sent Jesus to die for us. 
That's why we sing words like how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Through the pages of the New Testament, God tells us, I have loved you in salvation. But God also says, I have loved you through discipline. Just when you thought it was going to be all sentiment and smiles. God says, I love you through discipline. The Hebrews writer talks about this at length. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, he will make a statement about the love of God and then make a logical argument to follow it up. Look at what he writes, Hebrews 12, verse 5, all the way through verse 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they, that is the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He, that is God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now I want to read all those verses again to see the statement made basically right at the beginning of the love of God and how the writer then gives just this logical argument after it. That the love of God is displayed in the fact that God disciplines us. He even talks about the fact that earthly parents, he specifically mentions fathers, but earthly parents try to do this. They do this as best they know how. And every parent goes, we don't do it perfectly. And every young person goes, amen to that. Right? They understand. We, we don't get it right all the time. But contrast that. If, if an earthly parent tries but doesn't get it right, then a perfect Heavenly Father always gets it right. How does God discipline us? Sometimes God disciplines us by letting us suffer for our own foolish choices, our own sins. That happens sometimes. Sometimes God disciplines us through His Word. We, we read the Bible, we study the Bible, and we see something there and realize, that's not what I've been doing. Or I've been doing this and not doing that. And, I, and that, that hurts deep within. I want to change. Sometimes God disciplines us through our biblically trained conscience. We know what God's Word says. We start going down a wrong path. And God, in His providence, through, his, through, through our conscience, sort of, sort of pains us a little bit. We realize, I better stop going down that path. Sometimes God disciplines us through other people. People who give godly, biblical counsel, even rebuke. Sometimes that's another person just in a meeting. Sometimes that's in a letter they send to you. Sometimes that's in a sermon. Sometimes that's an elder talking to you. Just a wise member of the church saying, you're going down the wrong path here. But God allows us to be disciplined. And in fact, God does discipline us because He loves us. This may sound very blunt, but it's just simply the truth. If God did not love us, he would let us just do whatever on earth we wanted to do. But then we'd all be in hell. But God loves us. And so God disciplines us. 
And so through the pages of the New Testament, God says to you, I love you through discipline. But God also says, I love you through provision. In James 1.17, James said, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I love that verse. Anything that we can say is good is a gift from God. He provides those things. But I want you to look at a passage that's a favorite for many of you. In the last verses of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 deals a lot with the hope we have in God, and then it deals a whole lot with the Holy Spirit. And as Paul talks about those, those couple of just deep, huge topics, the hope we have in God, and then the fact that the Holy Spirit helps us in things, look at how he draws that discussion to a close, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Pause. What things? Those things found in Romans chapter 8. The hope we have in God, the fact the Holy Spirit helps us. How are we supposed to respond to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure or persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I wanted to read that very famous passage of Scripture, all those verses, to make the connection. Did you see early on in the reading where Paul says, if God didn't spare His Son, don't you know He's going to give you all things? He's going to provide all things. And as, as the paragraph begins to unfold, Paul continues to talk about the love of God and all these things that simply cannot separate us from that. And you've heard it said many times, conspicuously absent from that list is me. In other words, I can choose to walk away from the love of God, but there's nothing of this world that can separate me from the love of God that provides everything that I need in this life. One of my favorite verses on the screens. In the Old Testament, David wrote in Psalm 37 and verse 25, I have been young and now I'm old. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. David was looking that, at that from a, a physical standpoint. Those who are faithful to God, David didn't say, they always have steak dinners and they have nice chariots. No, but he's saying they have what they need to live. God always takes care of them. Paul takes that concept here in Romans chapter 8 and makes it in a spiritual way as expansive as possible. God will provide for us everything that we need spiritually and nothing from this world can separate us from that. Why? Because it's out of God's love. For the pages of the New Testament, God looks at you no matter what you're going through and says, I've loved you by providing for you. And he says also, I've loved you through adoption. It's only half a verse, but it's one of the most beautiful statements found in all of Scripture. 
In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, see what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we might be called children of God. And then John adds four of my favorite words in the Bible. And so we are. Now, then Adam, why on that screen does it have the word adoption? That, that word's not found in that verse. No, it's not. But it's found all over the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament continually, regularly reminds us that God adopts us into His family. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, you have that list of all spiritual blessings that are found in Christ Jesus. And Paul lists about seven or eight of them there. I forget what the count is. But one of them is adoption as sons. He doesn't just say adoption. He says adoption as sons. In other words, He brings you into the family. Folks, when God saves you, He doesn't just make you part of some group. When God saves you, He doesn't just say, now you're part of the organization. No! When God saves you, He adopts you into His family. By the way, parenthetically, that's the concept that makes adoption in our lives, in our world, in a physical way, such a beautiful, gospel-honoring picture. Is That's how God brings us into His family. Close parentheses. But what a thought that is! That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what the world might think of you, when God saves you, He doesn't make you a second class citizen. He doesn't just make you part of some nebulous group. He says, this is my son. This is my daughter. This is my child. I have chosen you. Adoption. God says, I love you. By making you part of the family. And five, through the pages of the New Testament, God says, I have loved you through anticipation. I told you to get back to Romans chapter five. But I want to save this point for last because of what it talks about. Because it talks about the future. The opening five verses of Romans chapter five, Paul wrote this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. I can't explain the Holy Spirit. I just can't. How He operates, how He works, I've got some ideas. You do too. If we, we start talking to you all day long trying to figure it all out. But all I know from that passage is this. However it is specifically that the Holy Spirit operates or the Holy Spirit works, the Apostle Paul says that when I'm going through a time where there is any level of difficulty, then any hope that I have, any anticipation that I have in that moment, is because God's love sent His Spirit into my life. How that works, we could argue all day long. But I'm not so much worried about how it works. I'm just grateful that it works. I'm just grateful that God sends His Spirit that when I'm going through times of suffering and can feel any level of hope whatsoever, I can say in those moments, that's from God's love. And by the way, that's true of hope in this life. 
And of course it's true of hope of something that's far, far, far better than this life. And you say, wait a second. But what if I hope for something in this life and it doesn't go the way I want it to? What if I have that anticipation, that hope, but the doctor still gives me the news I didn't want to hear? It's just not going to change. Or, or my loved one still dies from that horrible disease. Or, or that job that was, was everything that we had as far as finances goes is taken away. And, and I hoped it wouldn't happen. I mean, I really did. I really had anticipation. And now it changed. It's because the hope that we have doesn't disappoint because our hope isn't in this life. We know that no matter how bad things might get here, we sing it, don't we? This world is not my home. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And it's really only Christians that can act that way. When life completely caves in, and to use an old phrase, when all hope is lost, it isn't. All hope is not lost. Because we have anticipation of something that is infinitely greater than the best day we've ever spent in this life. That's God saying, I love you. You may have come this morning to a church building. But somewhere deep in your mind, you're really wondering, does God actually love me? Out of the now basically 8 billion people in the world, does God see me? Does God care for what I'm going through? Does God hear my prayers? And you may, not the exact words, but you may have actually looked to the heavens and basically asked the same question that those people asked in Malachi. God, I know You said You love me, but how have You loved me? We could have gone on this morning, couldn't we? But in at least five ways through the New Testament, through salvation, through discipline, through provision, through adoption, through anticipation. God is looking at you and He is saying, I have loved you. I came here this morning not to glibly say, oh, you know God loves you, just buck up. I came here this morning to show you from Scripture your Creator and Father actually saying, I love you. Lean on that. Rely on that. And love Him. Because He first loved you. At the cross, Jesus shed His blood to offer you salvation. 
That's a cry of love from your Father. Have you given your life to Him? Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. Jesus, what are your commandments about salvation? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Most of us in this room have done that. If you haven't, today's the day to do it. But maybe even you as a Christian, someone who teaches a Bible class, someone who shows up every time there's a, a card writing meeting, someone who, who's in, in meetings all the time, maybe even you, somewhere deep in your thinking, are actually asking, God, do you, I mean, I'm here, but God, do you really love me? Yes. Yes, He loves you. But He wants you to come home. Not to the church building. To Him. Will you do that? Ask the God we stand and sing to encourage you.